Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the life and legacy of Congressman John Lewis at a moment in time when the lessons he has to teach us are as important as when he first learned them himself during the dawn of the Civil Rights era. Clips today come from Sojourner Truth, Lift Every Voice, The Brian Lehrer Show, Into America, Fresh Air, On Point, The Politocrat, and a portion of Barack Obama's eulogy given at John Lewis's funeral. On Friday, July 17th, the world lost two icons of the civil rights movement in the United States, C.T. Vivian and Congressman John Lewis. C.T. Vivian, born on July 30th, 1924 in Boonville, Missouri, was an activist, author, minister, and lead organizer during the civil rights movement alongside the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In 1947, a C.T. Vivian took part in his first sit-in demonstrations, which successfully integrated Barton's Cafeteria in Illinois. C.T. Vivian co-founded the Nashville Christian Leadership Conference and helped coordinate sit-in protests against segregation in Nashville in 1960 and an historic civil rights march the following year. He also participated in the Freedom Rides, in which activists traveled on interstate buses across segregated states in the South, and they were met with much violence. The Freedom Rides challenged the lack of enforcement of two Supreme Court decisions which ruled that segregated public buses were unconstitutional. In 2008, he went on to establish the C.T. Vivian Leadership Institute. In 2013, former President Barack Obama awarded C.T. Vivian the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Congressman John Lewis, born on February 21, 1940 in Boone, um, served as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee known as SNCC. He was an active member as a young man from 1963 to 1966. As a respected leader of SNCC, he helped organize the historic March on Washington in 1963, protesting racism and segregationist policies. There he delivered an impassioned speech in which he was prepared to uh, deal with the question, which side is the federal government on? In 1965, on a day known as Bloody Sunday, he was beat up with batons by police on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, resulting in a fractured skull. Like C.T. Vivian, Congressman uh, John Lewis was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by former President Barack Obama. He represented Georgia's 5th Congressional District in the House of Representatives from 1987 until his passing. Funeral services for C.T. Vivian are set for Thursday, July 23rd at the Providence Missionary Baptist Church in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. This according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And funeral services for Congressman uh, John Lewis have not yet been announced, but memorials are expected to take place in Washington. Washington, D.C. at 
Atlanta and in his birthplace of Troy, Alabama, according to BET. Let's go to a few clips now. The first you'll hear uh, C.T. Vivian uh, confronting a very, very brutal situation in the South uh, with just a very, very brutal law enforcement and with him confronting Bill Bull Connor. And then you will hear uh, the voice of John Lewis. Let's go to those clips now. You can't keep anyone in the United States from voting without hurting the rights of all other citizens. He shoved the uh, nightstick into my solar plexus. Then the policeman lets loose. It went all over the country. When you see that people are being beaten because they want to vote, the people in the country know who's wrong. Rosa Parks said of him, even after things had supposedly been taken care of and we had our rights, he was still out there, inspiring the next generation, including me. Only the things that help you help somebody are were really worth the effort. So this, in your view, is not an honor to oh, wait, represent oh, all that you have done, but instead you say oh, this is incentive well, to continue well, to do more. Of course, of course, and you got it exactly right. We have proven that we can solve social problems without violence, if we choose. You and I have talked a lot about your early days, but just a lot, there's a lot of young people out there that, that I think you get a lot of inspiration from the fact that you were very young. You were a college student and, and, and suddenly were compelled to jump headfirst into the civil rights movement. Can you tell me a little bit about your motivation and that for early, those early experiences about you making a very dramatic decision in your life to go full in on a cause for justice? Well, growing up in rural Alabama during the 40s and the 50s, I tasted the bitter fruits of segregation and racial discrimination, and I didn't like it. Uh, I saw the signs that said, white waiting, colored waiting, white men, colored men, white women, colored women. And I kept asking my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why? They would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. But one day, 15 years old, in the 10th grade, I heard the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio. And his words, his voice, inspired me. I heard of Rosa Parks. I grew up 50 miles from Montgomery. And it was like manna from heaven, hearing about Rosa Parks, getting arrested, taken to jail, he and Dr. King delivering a speech at the First Baptist Church in Montgomery. It changed my life. Wow. And I kept saying to myself, if the people in Montgomery can do this, we can do something too. So in 1957, I applied to go to a little college called Troy State College. It's now known as Troy University. It didn't admit black students. So I submitted my application my high school transcript. I never heard a word from the school. So I wrote a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
I didn't tell my mother, didn't tell my father, any of my sisters or brothers, any of my teachers. I told Dr. King in this letter I needed his help. He wrote me back wow. and sent me a round-trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery. That's alone is spectacular to me that he wrote you back. He wrote me back. And sent you the round-trip ticket? Well, he knew I was very poor. Yes. You know, son of a sharecropper. But my father in 1944, when I was four years old, had saved $300, and a man sold him 110 acres of land. And I think Dr. King had his, what can come out of Troy? Why is this boy doing this? It's dangerous. Yes. And I got accepted at a little college in Nashville called American Baptist Theological Seminary. Later became the College of the Bible. I wanted to be a minister. Right. You know, growing up as a little kid, on the farm, we raised a lot of chickens. Yes. <laughs> and it was my responsibility to care for the chickens. And we would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard. And my brothers and sisters and cousins were lined outside of the chicken yard. But along with the chickens, they helped make up the audience, the congregation. Yes. And I would preach to the chickens. And they would respond to you, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> they would make a little noise also. And Dr. King somehow and some way believe that something good can come out of rural Alabama, out of Troy. So I was accepted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got back in church. One of his classmates, who was one of my teachers, told him that I was there. And he suggested when I was home for spring break to come and see him. So in March of 1958, by this time I'm 18 years old, I took a Greyhound bus from Troy, 50 miles away, to Montgomery. Wow. And a young lawyer, never seen a lawyer, never met a lawyer before, a man by the name of Fred Gray, who was a lawyer for Rosa Parks, yes. so Dr. King and the Montgomery Movement, became our lawyer during the Freedom Ride and during the march from Selma to Montgomery. Drove me to the First Baptist Church, pastor by the Reverend Ralph Abernathy. Yes. And I was so scared, I didn't know what to say or what to do. He ushered me into the office of the church. I saw Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy standing behind a desk. And Dr. King spoke up and said, Are you the boy from Troy? Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. But he still called me the boy from Troy. <laughs> and up until he was assassinated. Really? He referred to me as the boy from Troy. How's the boy from Troy doing? I also want to take two minutes and play an excerpt from the life of the other civil rights era leader, leader who died on the same day as John Lewis did on Friday. Not as universally well known as John Lewis, but for people in the movement at that time, C.T. Vivian was a force. He was a very close colleague of Martin Luther King as director of affiliates for King's Group, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was basically an organization of affiliates, church leaders from many different Southern communities. And C.T. Vivian 
led anti-segregation efforts in various cities and was a leading practitioner of nonviolent protest. He was the victim of police violence and of being jailed multiple times. What we're going to play now, and I'm going to apologize for the 1965 sound quality with a little buzz in the background, but I think it's worth it. What we're going to play now is two minutes of an encounter in Selma, Alabama in 1965 when C.T. Vivian led a group to the courthouse there to try to register to vote. And it's incredible that this even exists because it wasn't like anyone had cell phones to record these things in 1965, right? But it was filmed. And what you'll hear is C.T. Vivian confronting the infamous segregationist sheriff in Selma from those days, Jim Clark, and Clark calling the group who was trying to register felons. When Vivian persists, Clark actually punches him in the face. And you'll hear some seconds of just chaos. It's just going to be audio chaos, no words for part of this after the punch. But then you'll also hear C.T. Vivian get back up stick to his nonviolence and ask, what kind of people are you? So two minutes of C.T. Vivian, Selma, Alabama, 1965. This courthouse does not belong to Sheriff Clark. This courthouse belongs to the people of Dallas County, and these are the people of Dallas County, and they have come to register. And you know this within your own heart, Sheriff Clark. You are not as evil a man as you ask. You know in your heart what is right. You just refuse to do it because you want these people behind you. And as sheriff of this county, if you're deeply concerned, you will go call the registrar rather than keep people from standing inside. What you're really trying to do is intimidate these people and by making them stand in the raid, keep them from registering to vote. And this, this is a kind of violation of the Constitution, the violation of the court order, the violation of decent citizenship. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. I'm looking down the line seeing all the people who've been in jail for felonies. That's what I'm looking Precisely at. Precisely right. And if, they, and if they're not fit to vote, you'll be able to find that out. But you'll not know it until they're, until they're on the registrar. And many of those have a felony action because Sheriff Clark made them a felony action. Not because they were rightfully What kind of people are you? C.T. Vivian in Selma, Alabama, with Sheriff Jim Clark in 1965. That incident helped lead to the passage of the Voting Rights Act later that same year. And C.T. Vivian died on Friday, the same day as John Lewis. C.T. Vivian was 95 years old. John Lewis was 80.
Dr. Bernard Lafayette Jr. has spent decades fighting for civil rights through organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was named National Coordinator for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign in 1968. Dr. Lafayette worked alongside John Lewis for years, but they met as roommates at American Baptist College way back in 1958. We had a common uh, kind of upbringing, you might say, in terms of the racial conditions that exist. And we had a lot of same attitudes about not accepting it and not going along with it. Hmm. But at the same time, because uh, the way we were brought up, we didn't have any uh, hatred towards other people. And so we had that in common. But uh, he was a president, class president. So he was already in a leadership position. And the other thing is he was a year ahead of me, so I got a chance to read all of his books, and he tutored me. Okay. That's much different than the nightmare roommate situation that some people have. You got John Lewis, the president <laughs> of the student body, mentoring you and teaching you. Yes. Uh, are there any stories that just stand out that you recall from those early days of, of just John Lewis? Well, uh, he was always uh, very calm and uh, uh, with others. And the thing that uh, it really impressed me was the fact that when there was a issue or problem, he never did attack other people. He was very quiet and he listened, okay? And then he decided how he was going to respond. And and people respected him. And I think that's why they wanted him as a leader. Because remember now, all of these students were potential leaders, like pastors of churches and ministers. Right. So this was a leader of the future leaders, so you have in John Lewis, this natural born leader, who were you at that time? And were you ready to jump into activism and protests from the beginning? Well, actually, what happened is that when John Lewis asked me about these uh, workshops that were going on, James Lawson Jr. was a graduate student at Vanderbilt and he was conducting these workshops in Nashville because he had, Martin Luther King had told him to come south. And so John Lewis was going to them. And, you know, he asked me to come. And I said, no, man, I don't have time for that. I got jobs. I was always used to working. But he kept in, insisting. So I said, all right, okay, all right. I'm going to come just to shut his mouth. And... Sure enough, when I went to that workshop and they were talking about sitting in at lunch counters and stuff like that, I was hooked. So it was John Lewis that got me hooked. There are so many iconic photos of John Lewis. And one that stands out to me, which really puts on display uh, the sacrifices that y'all were making, is this image of him after he got bloodied and beaten in Alabama, I believe it was, during the Freedom Rides. Oh, yeah. Could you take us back to 1961 when the Freedom Rides began? So when it started, uh, we started training people, okay, like we did for the sit-ins there, to, for the Freedom Rides. And we set up a 24-hour training uh, station. So you have to get organized. It's not just a matter of going down, protesting, or doing some sit-ins or whatever. We had a backup group, in other words. So when the first, when we took over the Freedom Rides, John Lewis was a spokesman for the first group, and I was spokesman for the second group, the backup group. So we had to see what was going to happen to them when they got to Birmingham, leaving Nashville. 
And then whatever happened to them, then we would decide to, on the second group. They got arrested. And while they got arrested, we launched the second group. And we crossed each other in the middle of the night, okay? Because some of us went by the car and some went by train. And uh, what we did was uh, met together in Birmingham and started off there. Now, where John Lewis was attacked was when we got to Montgomery. And we got into Montgomery. Uh, to, it was very quiet, even though uh, it was on Saturday morning. No people on the streets, no cars running, nothing like that. We had uh, National Guardmen. We had state troopers and everybody giving us protection on the bus. But when the bus got to Montgomery, Alabama bus station, okay, all those protection disappeared. Helicopters and everything. They were there and then they just, they're just gone. Yeah. Hmm. So we got suspicious. So I told the students to all join uh, hands to find a partner. No matter what happens, you stick with your partner so somebody will know what happened to you. And while we were there get, getting ready to get off the bus, a group of reporters had gotten a bus out of Birmingham earlier ahead of us so that they could film and take pictures and stuff like that. And the mob came out of the bus station and took off and started beating up all the reporters, beating white reporters, smashing cameras over their head. I couldn't imagine. I didn't know what would happen. So anyway, we joined hands, and the mob came and started beating us up. Then when they hit John Lewis, they hit with a Coca-Cola crate over the head. And that metal strip was the thing that put that gash in his head, not just a crate, okay? And they were trying to kill John Lewis because they knew him and had identified him as one of the leaders. And they were clobbing him over the head and putting scars. Then they came after me. And, uh, boy, this guy had on some bro gang shoes and he was going to kick me in a certain place on my body. Mm. And I tried to protect myself. So I fold my arms around and bent down when he started the, the, the kick and he ended up cracking three of my ribs. And I went through the freedom rides. All those days and months with three cracked ribs, because there's nothing you can do with cracked ribs. You can't do surgery and all that. So I, that was a lesson for me because I learned how to endure pain. Yeah. And I didn't want to complain because they would, my buddies would, wouldn't let me go on a freedom ride if I had cracked ribs, you know. You said, you said to tough it out. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, John Lewis, it's not the fact that he was hit over the head. The thing about it, John did not move. Mm. He did not try to escape. He stood there even after they cracked him over the head. I guess the, the word that you can describe John Lewis is he had uh, undescribable resistance. Yeah, that was his way of responding in a nonviolent way to show them that hitting him over the head was not a way to stop him.
In the 1960s, Lewis repeatedly risked his life working to end segregation and gain voting rights for black people in the South. When he was growing up in Alabama, there was one county whose population was 80% African American, but there wasn't a single registered black voter. Here's our interview. Congressman Lewis, welcome to Fresh Air, and thank you so much for joining us. When you were a young man, were you ever challenged at the polls? Did you have a hard time registering, or did anyone ever try to prevent you from voting? When I was growing up in rural Alabama, uh, it was impossible for me to register to vote. I didn't become a registered voter until I moved to Tennessee, to Nashville, as a student. Why was it impossible? Black men and women were not allowed to register to vote. My own mother, my own father, my grandfather, and my uncles and aunts uh, could not register to vote because each time they attempted to register to vote, they were told they could not pass their literacy test. And many people were so intimidated, so afraid that they would lose their jobs they would be evicted from the farms, and they just—they almost gave up. Your parents were sharecroppers. No, uh, my you, mother yeah. and father, and many of my relatives have been sharecroppers. They have been tenant farmers, like so many people in the South. They knew the stories that had occurred. They knew places in Alabama where people were evicted from the farm, from the plantation. They, they read about, they heard about incidents in Tennessee where people were evicted from the farms and the plantation uh, back in 1956, in 1957, in West Tennessee, between Nashville and Memphis, Tennessee. Now, because of that, did you did your parents tell you not to bother to try to vote because it would be dangerous, they might lose their farm? My, my parents told me in the very beginning, as a young child, and I raised the question about segregation and racial discrimination, they told me not to get in the way, not to get in trouble, and not to make any noise. But we had teachers. We had high school principals. We, we had people teaching in colleges and university in Tuskegee, Alabama. But they were told they failed the so-called literacy test. One of the more dramatic moments of the Civil Rights Movement was a march that you helped lead in 1965 of about 600 people. The march was supposed to be from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, demanding voting rights, but the marchers were stopped soon after you started marching, and you were beaten by the police. Would you talk first a little bit about the goal of that march? In, in 1965, the attempted march from Selma to Montgomery on March 7th, was planned to dramatize to the state of Alabama and to the nation that people of color wanted to register to vote. In Selma, you can only attempt to register to vote on the first and third Mondays of each month. You had to go down to the courthouse and get a copy of the so-called literacy test and attempt to pass the test. And people have stood in line day in and day out failing to get a copy of the test or failing to uh, pass the test. So after several hundred people had been arrested and people had been beaten and one young man had been shot and killed, we decided to march. And on Sunday afternoon, March 7th, about 600 of us left a little church called Brown Chapel AME Church and started walking in an orderly, 
peaceful, nonviolent fashion through the streets of Selma. We were walking in twos, no one saying a word. We came to the edge of the bridge, crossing the Alabama River. We continued to walk. We came to the highest point on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Down below, we saw a sea of blue, Alabama State Troopers. And we kept walking, and we came within hearing distance of the State Troopers. And a man identified himself and said, I am Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers. This is an unlawful march. It would not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your church. In less than a minute and a half, the major said, Troopers advance. And you saw these men putting on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with bullwhips, nightsticks, driving us with horses, and releasing the tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. I had a concussion there at the bridge. And almost 44 years later, I don't recall how I made it back across that bridge through the streets of Salma. But I do recall being back at the church that Sunday afternoon. The church is full to capacity. More than 2,000 people on the outside. And someone said to me, John says something to the audience. Speak to them. And I stood up and said something like, I don't understand it, how President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam, but cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama, to protect people who only desire to register to vote. What was the impact, do you think, of that march on the actual passage of the Voting Rights Act? The march created a sense of righteous indignation among the American people. When they saw the photographs, when they read the stories, when they heard the news on the radio, watched it on television. They didn't like it. A few days after Bloody Sunday, there was demonstration in more than 80 American cities at the White House, at the Department of Justice. People were demanding that the government act. President Johnson didn't like what he saw. He called Governor Wallace, the governor of Alabama at the time, to come to Washington and try to get assurance from the governor that he would be able to protect us if we decided to march again. The governor could not assure the president. So President Johnson federalized the Alabama National Guard, called out part of the United States military. And eight days after Bloody Sunday, President Lyndon Johnson spoke to a joint session of the Congress and made one of the most meaningful speeches any American president had made in modern time on the whole question of voting rights and introduced the voting Rights Act. And I was sitting in a home in Selma, Alabama that evening when President Johnson spoke to the nation and spoke to the Congress, sitting with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And at one point in the speech, before Dr. before President Johnson rather concluded the speech, he said, and we shall overcome. And we shall overcome. I looked at Dr. King. Tears came down his face, and we all cried a little to hear President Johnson say, and we shall overcome. And he said to me and to others in the room, we will make it from Selma to Montgomery, and the Voting Rights Act will be passed. Finally, two weeks after Bloody Sunday, we started on the third effort to make it from Selma to Montgomery. 300 of us marched all of the, of the way but by the time we walked into Montgomery, 
there were more than 25,000 citizens. And that effort led the Congress to debate the Voting Rights Act and passed that act, and President Johnson signed it into law in August of 1965. word earlier about how liberating it was to surrender to the cause of nonviolence, to surrender to the ideals of this movement and this philosophy of love that so penetrates your being. I feel it when I'm in your presence, this calm, unconditional, unyielding love that led you to be beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, beaten on Freedom Rides, beaten at lunch counters. I wonder, can you connect that ideal of love to here we are in present-day politics and people all around this country, we don't see often that spirit of love. How does that, can you tell me about your personal philosophy, this liberating philosophy, and how you see it needed today, maybe? Well, the philosophy is in keeping with the teaching of Gandhi, in keeping with the scripture. It's better to love than to hate. Dr. King used to say to us over and over again, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. You you free yourself, you liberate yourself. And you say, I'm not gonna hate. I'm just gonna love everybody. Dr. King used to joke from time to time and say, just love the hell out of everybody. Right. You will feel better. One one of the guys uh, that beat us in Rocky Hill, South Carolina in May, 1961? Yes. Those are the buzzes for Congress. They tell us when to go and where to go. Yes, yes. But keep going. One of the people that that beat you. Came came to my office. Came to my office. Years later, here in Washington, he had been inquiring with local people, members of the press, that he wanted to meet this guy that he had attacked at the Greyhound bus station in, in Rock Hill. He was in his 70s. He came with his son, who was in it in his 40s. And a reporter from Rocky Hill, South Carolina came with him. And he came in and I said, welcome. He said, Mr. Lewis, I've been a member of the Klan. I'm one of the people that beat you and your seatmate. Will you forgive me? Wow. Um, I said, I forgive you. He said, will you accept my apology? I said, I accept your apology. His son started crying. Mm. He started crying. They hugged me, I hugged him back, and the three of us cried together. Mm. It is the power of the way of peace, the power of the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. Because you cannot go around just hating people or putting people down because of their Feeling their being, their past, their color, their nationality. We, we all are human. The first 
Let's listen to Lewis himself, remembering what it was like being a young activist on a massive national stage. On August 28, 1963, he was just 23 when he stood beside Martin Luther King at the Lincoln Memorial, the youngest speaker at the historic March on Washington. He was introduced that day by A. Philip Randolph. I have the pleasure to present to this great audience young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother John Lewis. When A. Philip Randolph called my name or introduced me, I went straight to the podium. Then I said to myself, I said, I must go for it. And I started speaking. We march today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of. But hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. Well, I had the pleasure of speaking with Congressman Lewis at length back in 2013, and we want to hear more of that conversation now. We started by talking about what had happened earlier that summer in 63, when civil rights leaders first told President Kennedy that they were planning to march on the nation's capital. That was back in, uh, in June when we met with the president, A. Phil Randolph, this dean of black leadership, this prince of a man, spoke up in his baritone voice, and he said, Mr. President, the black monsters are restless, and we're going to march on Washington. And you can tell by the body language of President Kennedy, he didn't like the idea of someone talking about marching on Washington. The march hadn't even been formally planned at that time, right? Uh, not at all, not at all. But the idea, he saw, of bringing hundreds and thousands of people to Washington he said, if you bring all these people to Washington, won't there be violence and chaos and disorder? And we would never get a civil rights bill through the Congress. Mr. Randolph responded and said, Mr. President, this would be an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent protest. You were just 23 at the time. I was 23 years old, uh, had all of my hair, and a few pounds lighter. You were speaker number six on that day. First of all, just tell me what you saw. Hundreds and thousands of young people, students, volunteers, black and white, up in the trees, trying to get a better view. Then I looked straight ahead. I saw many, many young people and people not so young with their shoes off, their feet in the water, trying to cool off on this hot August day. Now, your speech, Congressman Lewis, on that day, many people think that it's actually as memorable, possibly, as Dr. King's was, because Dr. King gave this resounding sermon, almost, about hope and dreams in America. Is it fair to say that your speech was something of a, of a counterpoint about the reality of what was happening in the South at that time? I mean, in the speech you say... uh that we come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police jobs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstrations. Basically because you didn't feel that enough was in the Civil Rights Bill to protect people against violence in the South. I thought it was a little, too little and too late. And down in the body of the speech, I said, listen, Mr. President, listen, members of Congress, 
wake up, wake up. You're trying to take the revolution out of the streets and put it in the courts. I say, you tell us to wait. You tell us to be patient. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. So what people really didn't like near the end of the speech, I said something like, if we do not see meaningful progress here today, the day may come when we will not confine our marching on Washington, but we may be forced to march through the South the way Sherman did nonviolently. People said, oh, no, you can't say that, John. And it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said to me, John, that doesn't sound like you. And we deleted that from the speech. And yet it was still so passionate and, and forthright. I'm asking you about this because we're speaking a half century later, and it's very easy uh, with that kind of distance to look back on momentous events like this through kind of rose-colored lenses, isn't it? And yet in 1963, there was horrific violence. There was no guarantee as President Kennedy said, that the Civil Rights Bill would be passed. Well, 1963 was an unbelievable year. Hundreds and thousands of people had been arrested in jail. Bull Connor, the police commissioner in the city of Birmingham, had used dogs and fire hoses on people, little children, on women. We had to act. We had to do something. I remember the morning of August 28, 1963, before we made it to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. We met with the leadership of the House, the leadership of the Senate, both Democrats and Republicans. And then we started walking down Constitution Avenue. We saw hundreds and thousands of people already marching. Now, we were supposed to be their leaders. It was almost like saying, there go my people. Let me catch up with them. There was a lot of tension between SNCC and SCLC. Now, SCLC is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, headed at the time by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the SCLC was a more moderate civil rights organization, born out of the church, which is more the black church, which is more conservative, tends to be historically more conservative. Born out of that tradition, Dr. King was a, was a preacher, obviously, and as a reverend and as someone who came out of that preaching t- tradition of the black church, he was much more of a, I would say, disciplined figure in that respect and someone who had a very different way of appealing to the conscience of America. In fact, Dr. King was the conscience of America. And Dr. King was just coming into stride as a national figure or had been prior to 1963, although 1963, the March on Washington really catapulted him, although he had been in the fight before that. He was one of the leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and 56. The Montgomery bus boycott went on for over 380 days along with Rosa Parks, the Rosa Parks. And Dr. King were two of the chief engineers of that boycott. 
that bus boycott. So you had all these events and A. Philip Randolph and Dr. King tended to get along a little better than A. Philip Randolph and John Lewis did. And look, Dr. King and John Lewis, as I said, they were, you know, there was tension between them. There's no secret about that. No secret about it at all. In fact, as I said, SCLC was more conservative in its ways of approaching justice for black people in this country. And SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they didn't play around. John Lewis's folks, John Lewis and company, they didn't play around. They wanted change now. And they criticized SCLC, felt that it was too slow, it was too moderate. Again, SNCC was the younger generation. It was a student movement. And this is something that has always gone on in this world, the clash of generations. And I don't mean that violently. I mean that there's this intellectual clash. There's this one group that wants things right now to change. We've had enough. We're not going to grow up in a world where we are being completely trampled upon. We're seeing this right now in 2020, of course, with the Black Lives Matter movement and a new generation that is picking up that mantle. And then you had SCLC, perhaps a little bit older, a bit more seasoned, a bit more weathered, a bit more moderate in their approach. So that tension continued. And the apex of that was at the 1963 March on Washington. And there were numerous Numerous. And by the way, Ava DuVernay captures the tension between SNCC and SCLC very well, by the way, in her film Selma. So I urge you to go and watch that film if you haven't seen it. It is available uh, on streaming platforms and it's available, obviously, on Blu-ray and DVD. I urge you to go in and watch that movie if you haven't. She captures some very good moments of that in that movie that she did. Great movie. But this tension between these groups, it was remarkable leading up to 1963, the March on Washington, which is April, excuse me, August the 28th of that year, 1963. And what people do not remember or are frequently only drawn to is the so-called I have a dream speech by Dr. King, which was a legendary speech. But he said a lot of things in that speech that the media do not talk about because a lot of them are about and against the interests of those corporations that broadcast what we call news today, or what passes for it, I guess. But this was a remarkable time, because behind the scenes, there was so much rancor. John Lewis was not having it at all. He wanted to speak, and it wasn't until late that he got the chance to speak, in terms of late in the process of getting all of this together for the speakers, for this march on Washington, for this culmination on the Washington Mall, where Lincoln, and then where Lincoln was, the monument. This is, this was something. This was really something. And A. Philip Randolph was not having it. He did not want John Lewis to say anything that was considered incendiary by the standards of either uh, his organization or most of the other moderate leaders. 
he he was petrified. And John Lewis was demanding a chance to speak. He wanted to convey the urgency of now. And as Dr. King says, the fierce urgency of now. And I'm sure that uh, John Lewis, excuse me, Dr. King says the fierce urgency of now. And I'm sure John Lewis may have conveyed that to Dr. King. Look, there's no question that Dr. King and John Lewis may not have been the closest at the time, but I can tell you they did get closer during this March on Washington and beyond. This was a major, major situation. And John Lewis, it's incredible what happened in trying to get these speeches together. It's just phenomenal, actually, when you really think about it. Aphelet Randolph was saying this, and the Washington Post has also recorded this story, but, you know, Gillian Brockett actually said, this is so interesting. <laughs> Gillian Brockett <laughs> in the Post said that the um, Aphelet Randolph was pleading with John Lewis, absolutely pleading with him. <laughs> and that Randolph looked at Lewis and, and it, with tears in his eyes and, and said, he, he begged him, he, he said to John Lewis, you look, quote, I've waited my whole life for this opportunity. Please don't ruin it. <laughs> this is when I say that John Lewis was a firebrand and a radical I'm not joking. He was. And quite frankly, that never really wavered throughout his entire life. I've been thinking about this all weekend. Uh, there is a page turning in American history with yes. the death of Congressman Lewis. Just your thoughts on what the nation has now lost since his passing. Absolutely. Well, I would say with, with the passing of John Lewis, and also I should say the Reverend C.T. Vivian, who, who was another mm -hmm. civil rights leader, both uh, of them died in Atlanta just hours apart. And these types of men and women, this generation, what they survived and, and what they sacrificed in trying to really make this country live up to uh, its founding ideals, right? Until the revolution of 70, 1776 is complete, as Congressman Lewis said, with their passing for so many years, just their physical presence in many ways was a guardrail for this country, a reminder, not only of, of an era that I would say most of the country does not want to go back to, but of the progress, you know, that, that was hard fought and, and won. And without those people here, I think that, that there is a real fear and concern, especially as we've seen kind of the retrenchment of racism in our current political and social climate, even as we see people pushing back against that and trying to reject that in this national reckoning on race that we mm. see. And, and, and a lot of that is in the spirit of, of folks like Congressman Lewis and, and, and Reverend Vivian. Right. You know, so um, there are just uh, the sort of um, coincidences in history, maybe not coincidences, but facts in history that give that give me goosebumps sometimes. Right. Because 
you remind us rightly that Reverend C.T. Vivian and Congressman Lewis died within hours of each other. It just mm-hmm. suddenly it popped into my mind that, you know, talking about the unfinished work of real, or, or the real, realizing the, the founding principles of this country, like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died within hours of each other too. And, and, and I just, yeah. I, I think I, I would put both Reverend Vivian, I would definitely, without a doubt, put both Reverend Vivian and Congressman Lewin in, Lewis in the same firmament as founders of and champions of what we what should be the American ideal. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, those men and women, the folks who were on the front lines, but also the foot soldiers whose names and faces we don't always know are among our country's founding and founding mothers and fathers because they really did help to make our democracy real for so many who had been so long excluded. I mean, I think about I think about that generation, especially the women of that generation, too, uh, who had to fight twice as hard to get the vote that, that we celebrate, obviously, with this centennial of the 19th Amendment, for which my newsroom is named. But really, much like mm-hmm. the greatest generation, which we honor a lot for defending freedom during World War II, these Black Americans really survived battle and, and, and they helped to right. perfect our union. O'Connor may be gone, but today we witness with our own eyes police officers kneeling on the necks of black Americans. George Wallace may be gone, but we can witness our federal government sending agents to use tear gas and batons against peaceful demonstrators. We may no longer have to guess the number of jelly beans in a jar in order to cast a ballot. But even as we sit here, there are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the Postal Service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. Now, I know this is a celebration of John's life. There are some who might say we shouldn't dwell on such things. But that's why I'm talking about it. John Lewis devoted his time on this earth fighting the very attacks on democracy and what's best in America that we're we're seeing circulate right now. He knew that every single one of us has a God-given power and that the fate of this democracy depends on how we use it, that democracy isn't automatic. 
It has to be nurtured. It has to be tended to. We have to work at it. It's hard. And so he knew that it depends on whether we summon a measure, just a measure of John's moral courage to question what's right and what's wrong and call things as they are. He said that as long as he had a breath in his body, he would do everything he could to preserve this democracy. And as long as we have breath in our bodies, we have to continue his cause. If we want our children to grow up in a democracy, not just with elections, but a true democracy, a representative democracy, and a big, hearted, tolerant, vibrant, inclusive America of perpetual self-creation, then we're going to have to be more like John. We don't have to do all the things he had to do because he did them for us. But we got to do something. As the Lord instructed Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. It's just... Everybody's got to come out and vote. We got, we got all those people in the city, but they can't do nothing. Like John, we've got to keep getting into that good trouble. He knew that nonviolent protest is patriotic, a way to raise public awareness and put a spotlight on injustice and make the powers that be uncomfortable. Like John, we don't have to choose between protests and politics. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and situation. We have to engage in protests where that's effective, but we also have to translate our passion and our causes into laws, inst institutional practices, that's why John ran for Congress 34 years ago. Like John, we've got to fight even harder for the most powerful tool that we have, which is the right to vote. The Voting Rights Act is one of the crowning achievements of our democracy. That's why John crossed that bridge. That's why he spilled his blood. And by the way, it was the result of Democratic and Republican efforts. President Bush... Who spoke here earlier? And his father signed its renewal when they were in office. <laughs> President Clinton didn't have to because it was the law when he arrived. So instead, he made a law to make it easier for people to register to vote. But once the Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act, some state legislators unleashed a flood of laws designed 
specifically to make voting harder, especially, by the way, state legislators where there's a lot of minority turnout and population growth. That's not necessarily a mystery or an accident. It was an attack on what John fought for. It was an attack on our democratic freedoms. And we should treat it as such. If politicians want to honor John, and, and, and I'm so grateful for the legacy and work of all the congressional leaders who are here, but th th there's a better way than a statement calling him a hero. You want to honor John? Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. And by the way, naming it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that is a fine tribute. But John wouldn't want us to stop there, just trying to get back to where we already were. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching to make it even better by making sure every American is automatically registered to vote, including former inmates who've earned their second chance. by adding polling places and expanding early voting and making Election Day a national holiday. So if you are somebody who's working in a factory or you're a single mom who's got to go to her job and doesn't get time off, you can still cast your ballot. by guaranteeing that every American citizen has equal representation in our government, including the American citizens who live in Washington, D.C. and in Puerto Rico. They're Americans. By ending some of the partisan gerrymandering so that all voters have the power to choose their politicians, not the other way around. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. you talk about the work and the discipline and the study that we can't just sit back and and entertain ourselves that there has to be a focus and a discipline and that's something clearly that impressed Martin Luther King about you and um, I can only imagine for you going through the, the civil rights movement uh, leading into the assassination of someone that you had a, an intimate relationship with what that must have shaken how that must have shaken you but you turned a tragedy into a triumph because you became a, a congressperson. You became 
a, a, a national leader. You never yielded when it came to the continued work. And King, at the end of his life, was doing things that were making him unpopular. He was speaking out against war and what was going on in Vietnam. He was challenging the very economic systems that were resulting still in such great poverty with the Poor People's March. And I wonder now, if you think many years from now, when you and I may have passed this earth, when they speak of you, how do you want to be remembered by those who come after us? Well, people just to say he tried to help out. He yes. did his best. He's just trying to help out. He, um, that I was deeply moved and inspired by the teaching of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. I saw a need. I saw problems that I wanted to try to help solve. That's, that's really powerful. That's all we can do. Let's continue to do our best. Well, you are um, my hero, and not just because of what you've done, but I just think you're one of those people in my life that is a man of such integrity because, the, and I sit with you in the Congressional Black Caucus, you speak little, but when you speak, everybody stops because your words are so consistent with your actions and you're such a man of deep character and you make me want to live up to the, to the values that you so live of love, kindness towards even those who hate you, even those who disagree with you, of being willing to make yourself uncomfortable consistently in the face of injustice. So I just want to thank you for being a mentor to me. And you've been, from, the, from the, literally the first day... I'll send I, it to you, you don't have to send it. Uh, I just try to help out. Yeah. You remind me, I was coming back to Washington on um, Sunday night. I was on a flight from Atlanta, and I'm walking down the aisle, and uh, the gentleman said as loud as he could, Trump. So I didn't. I just kept kept walking. I didn't say anything. And sometime I'm walking through that airport in different places. People was said they think they. Uh, I guess they're getting to me, harassing me. Yes. But they don't understand. You know, um, I've been called many, many things, but I'm not going to let anything get me down. Yes. I'll keep walking, keep moving. During the march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965, a guy wrote a little song saying, pick him up, lay him down, all the way from Selma town as we march. And that's what we must continue to do. Pick up our feet, set pick up Pick up our feet. Set it down. That's keep, right. Keep striding towards freedom. Right. King said so eloquently, uh, something I repeat all the time, that he said, we'll have to repent not for the vitriolic words and violent That's actions right. of the bad people, but the silence That's right. and the action of the good people. Well, you are good people, but you and the energy you put out is changing lives. And I want to end just with a personal note. The lawyers that helped me move into the town I grew up with, mm-hmm. and I think I first told you the story, I, I never, when we were, you and I were sitting on the Capitol steps doing a live Facebook feed and all those people came out really to be with you as you and I were protesting the attempts to roll back health care. But when I asked the lawyer who represented my family was part of the elaborate sting operation that exposed the racial segregation that was going on and racial steering that was going on in northern New Jersey, and I asked that lawyer why he did what he did, and he said to me, and he changed the destiny of my family. And I said, why did you do it? And he said, Corey, I was sitting comfortably at home 
watching TV. And then suddenly the news broke in to highlight some of these marchers who were going from Selma to Montgomery. And I watched these young people and old people get beaten with billy clubs savagely, viciously. And it so disturbed him that he went to work the next day and he and his partner ultimately decided since they couldn't afford to go to Alabama, they would do the best they could to offer help to any civil rights organization in New Jersey they could find. They Mm. found the Fair Housing Council Mm. and he would later get a file with my parents' name on it. Your protest on that bridge, even though that day you were not successful, the fact that you stood up with all those other marchers, you instantaneously changed the heart a thousand miles away in New Jersey, changed the heart of a man who would then go on and change the destiny of generations yet unborn. I would not be sitting here today if it wasn't for that chain reaction of love that was unleashed by one act of protest on a bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and left space and time, the love that you exhibited. And love is work, love is struggle, love is hard. Uh, The love that you showed on that bridge today and those other marchers made a way for me, changed my life. And so I I owe you a debt I can never repay. And the best I'm going to do is try to pay it forward by trying to live in your example, in King's example, in in Christ's example of radical love, uh, love that is risky, love that's dangerous, love that's hard, uh, love that gets mocked, love that gets heckled, love that gets beaten, but to continue in the way that you do every single day. And I witness it and I watch it, that you live with that humility uh, and that love of all and that strident activism to cause good trouble. We've just heard clips today, starting with Sojourner Truth, highlighting some historical audio of C.T. Vivian. The first clip from Lift Every Voice featured Senator Cory Booker speaking with John Lewis about his early days in the movement and meeting Martin Luther King Jr. The Brian Lehrer Show played more historical audio of C.T. Vivian. Into America featured a conversation with an old roommate and close friend of John Lewis. Fresh Air spoke with John Lewis about the march from Selma and its impact on the Voting Rights Act. The second clip from Lift Every Voice featured John Lewis explaining his belief in radical love and forgiveness. On Point played audio of a past interview with John Lewis describing his speech at the March on Washington. The Politocrat explained a bit of intergenerational behind-the-scenes tension in the civil rights movement. On Point spoke with a modern activist about the legacy John Lewis is leaving behind. Barack Obama gave a eulogy at John Lewis's funeral in which he highlighted the need to honor John's legacy with political action. And finally, we just heard Senator Cory Booker and John Lewis speaking in our third clip from Lift Every Voice about the lived impact of the reverberations that ripple out from getting into good trouble. Now, today, I I have something to say that will be news to some of you, undoubtedly. A lot of people in the, you know, who are pretty well tapped in to progressive news, politics, YouTube channels, and things like that will not, this will not be news to them. But if you delve into progressive 
politics primarily through Best of the Left, then uh, then you may not have caught wind yet that uh, Michael Brooks, host of the Michael Brooks Show, producer of the Majority Report, sadly passed away very suddenly at uh, at the age of thirty seven, which makes him within about a year of being my age, and he. You know, it was very unexpected. It was very sudden. No one saw it coming, obviously. And the only detail that I know is that it involved a blood clot. And so I just had a couple things to say about him. During the shows that I have watched, listening to people who knew him better than I did, and, you know, a lot of people knew him better than I did, describing what they appreciated about him. One thing really, really stuck out to me, and they described it as something that Michael would say, which is to be hard on systems, but gentle on people. And I would say that I sort of intrinsically knew that this was his focus, but I hadn't heard it expressed so explicitly or succinctly. And it's one of those concepts that's hard to nail down about a person because it's about listening to what people don't say, listening to the arguments they don't make, listening to the criticisms they don't bother bringing up, and remaining focused on the big picture, focus on systems, systems of influence, systems of power and oppression, while maybe criticizing individuals, but always keeping in mind that it is not the individual on which the weight of the world rests or, or from which the problems come. It, it is the way systems interact with individuals that is much, much more important. So obviously, this resonates with me a lot. And I think relevant to today's show, I think it strongly resonates with the messages that we've been learning today from John Lewis. The radical love that Lewis spoke of, I think, is just another way of saying to be gentle on people, while at the same time, being hard on systems. Plus, you know, I, I love a succinct summation of a concept, so I am definitely going to be stealing that one from Michael. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to learn that about him, that he you know, said that explicitly, even though I hadn't heard it before. And I, I wish that I could say I was a friend of Michael's. I, I did meet him once. I visited the Majority Report studios during a trip to New York City a few years ago. But it only took that one meeting to confirm what many others have been saying about Michael, all these people who know him well. Inevitably, uh, those who who either knew him or, or just fans of his work uh, will end up mentioning his impressions and his dark sense of humor. And during my visit, my, my one meeting with him, the moment that stands out to me was an incredibly dark impression of Amy Goodman, of all people, reading just one devastatingly terrible news headline after another, like satirical news headlines that he was making up in Amy Goodman's voice. And I was in absolute tears with laughter during that conversation. So when I think of Michael on a personal level, that is what I think of. And it 
it, it mirrors exactly what everybody says about him. And, and then just on the professional level, as the curator of a show called Best of Left, I regularly sift through content from 150 media sources. And obviously, I do my best to only present the best of the best of what I find. And Michael honestly held a very special place in my workflow. Unlike the vast majority of sources that I would search through and sift through and see what people had to say about any given topic, you know, as I was pulling together material on, on a given theme, I would often find myself actively seeking out Michael's YouTube channel in the hopes that he would have commented on a topic because I knew that if he addressed this, if he talked about this issue, then he would have brought a really interesting and nuanced perspective to the conversation. And that's always what I was on the lookout for. So while the vast majority of the content I, I look through, I, I search it more passively. Michael was one of the very, very few commentators who, who I would proactively seek out to hear what he had to say on a given topic. And, and so on a professional level, he exemplified what it is to be what I consider the best of the left. So he will be missed personally, professionally. And, you know, my heart goes out to, you know, everyone who is feeling his loss even stronger than I am. Now, last thing I have for you, I want to wrap up going back to John Lewis. I wanted to share some thoughts that I had when watching just a portion of John Lewis's memorial service in Selma. His coffin was taken on one last ceremonial crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, and I wrote this, what I'm about to read, just moments after watching the video of that event. So, you know, if you'll indulge me, it's not that long. I tend to cry more often about happy and heartwarming things than about sadness. This is not a hard and fast rule, though, and sometimes exceptions come along to prove it. I watched John Lewis be taken on his last crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, but it wasn't for John Lewis or our collective loss of him that I was crying. It was the masks being worn by those accompanying the coffin that got to me. My parents moved to Alabama a couple of years ago when I visited and was asked what I wanted to do. I said my only interest was to visit Selma and Montgomery to see the civil rights museums, namely the Legacy Museum and National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. While in Montgomery, in addition to the museums, we also saw Rosa Parks bus stop, visible from the steps of the State House, where Jefferson Davis gave his inaugural address as President of the Confederacy. Between those two points sits the church where Martin Luther King Jr. was pastor when he was recruited into the Civil Rights Movement. Walking that street feels like being in a diorama of America's racial history. As we approached the church, hoping to find out about opening hours and tour times, we were met outside by a custodian of the church, a middle-aged black woman who had just locked up the building for the lunch hour. She asked us, before we had a chance to speak, if we were coming to see Martin's church. We said we were, and as she explained the banal details of when the next tour would begin, she gave each member of our group a big hug and thanked us for coming. 
There was no doubt that she had hugged thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people in just the same way throughout her years of welcoming people to King's Church, but it was equally clear that each one was infused with intention, not at all a perfunctory or hollow gesture stripped of meaning from repetition. And that wasn't the last hug we received from strangers that day in Montgomery. Love and the expression of it is not a platitude in the movement for racial justice. It is at the core of where the movement and its members who live it daily get their strength. As I watched the physically distanced and masked people accompanying John Lewis's coffin across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, I thought of the women who welcome visitors to Martin Luther King Jr.'s church and how they are now unable to hug visitors to demonstrate the love of the movement in the most direct and personal way. An understanding of the cruel reality of a movement and its members being robbed of such an essential tool for justice and strength began to wash over me. My heart broke, and the tears began to flow. And that's going to be it for today. As always, you can give us a call on our voicemail line, 202-999-3991. I promise I will be getting back to those someday soon. Uh, things have been very odd recently, and and the voicemails have been sort of uh, shunted to the side, but I, I am as anxious as anyone to get back to them. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.